Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 682 with Bob Posen. Bob brings a wealth of experience as a former busy executive and cherished, amazingly on-time writer for the Harvard Business Review and shares some of his simple yet immensely valuable wisdom to achieve extreme productivity. Still learn one, the schedule hack for efficient prioritization. Two, the system to make your email work for you. And three, how to say no to a meeting. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP682. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, take a spin around. we got a lot of cool resources like searching the full text transcripts or email summaries of these episodes. Good stuff at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Bob's story. Robert C. Posen teaches at MIT Sloan School of Management, where he offers courses to executives on personal productivity. He was president of Fidelity Investments and executive chair of MFS Investment Management and served as a senior official in both federal and state government. His seven books include Extreme Productivity, a top-rated business title that's been translated into 10 languages. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard College and was on the editorial board of the Yale Law Journal. He lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Big thanks to Bob for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Bob. Bob, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Glad to be with you, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. So I understand you spent some time doing some sports hall of fame work. Any cool stories there? Yeah, well, I was uh, a member uh, of the board of the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, where we helped uh, raise money to put together a new Hall of Fame, which is really great. A lot of interactive features and really great stuff that uh, lots of kids uh, really like. Probably the most interesting part of that is when I uh, was uh, in the induction ceremony. Uh, We have an induction ceremony every year. And uh, there was, you know, my wife came to the first one and she said, gee, I'm the smallest person by a long shot there <laughs> because uh, everyone was like six, 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 seven, six, nine. So uh, that was a lot of fun. The other thing is when we sat as a board, we sat in alphabetical order. And uh, I happened to sit next to Oscar Robertson in a lot of meetings. And he was really fantastic. He uh, was one of the few players to hit a triple double. So he was really. 
one of my idols. In fact, I wrote a little poem about Oscar Robertson, which tried to convey what it would uh, feel like if you were listening to a basketball game with the Cincinnati Royals where he was playing, and uh, one of his uh, teammates was Bachhorn. So would you like to hear the poem? Oh, sure. Robertson, 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 Bachhorn, Robertson. So that's the poem to convey the sense of how dominant he was in the game. So it's a lot of fun. A poetic master at work. Uh, <laughs> well, and you've also written some prose in the nonfiction world. Can you tell, I want to hear a little bit about Remote Inc. and extreme productivity. Let's start with Remote Inc. Can you tell us, what would you say is one of your, your biggest uh, surprise discoveries as you were researching and, and putting together these insights? One of the biggest surprises was how much more work it takes for managers of remote teams to really manage effectively. A lot of people think, well, you know, if you're managing a remote team, there's not as much to do because you're not seeing these people as much, but that's just the opposite. You have to work a lot harder to manage your teams when they're remotely. You've got to work a lot harder to keep their spirits up, to give them guidance, and to give them regular feedback. So, that's a very different result than I thought when I started to research the book. Mm-hmm. And are there a couple of best practices you'd point to that show folks doing that super well? Yeah. So the one best practice is to have a weekly meeting of your team. Now, a lot of people have that, but we want to see that meeting be forward-looking rather than backward-looking. And a lot of weekly meetings are just reporting on the activities that you've had. So that doesn't really get you that far. We want everybody to say, what are they planning to do for the next week? So members of the team can input their uh, suggestions, can give them context and really help them to be more effective for the coming weeks. Then the second practice is we like to see uh, team managers uh, have one-on-ones with every member of the team every week. Because when people are remote, they're feeling somewhat isolated. They're not that integrated into the team. They're a little worried. Some of them might be suffering from loneliness or even depression. So having the manager speak to them, if only for a half an hour a week, makes a big difference. The third thing is performance reviews. I've always been against the annual performance review, where it's a formal sit-down and Uh, There's uh, usually a document which is uh, formulated and then filed and never seen again. What we want to see is to have periodic feedback, not one big performance review. So you want to have periodic feedback after every large project and at least once a quarter. And that's really important when people are working remotely. They really need that feedback. They need that guidance. And having it on a regular basis is really critical. Now, how about some tips for when you're not in the position of team leader? So when someone works remotely, they ought to have a different mindset. They ought not to think of themselves as an employee who takes instructions and detailed directions from their boss. They ought to think of themselves as a business of one. And by that, we mean that they should think of themselves as if they're a small business owner 
which they own their own resources and time. And that implies that the relationship with their boss is one of a client and not an underling. So they ought to treat their boss as their client and agree with the boss on what their deliverables are. And the boss obviously has to set them. But then once there's an agreement on deliverables, it's up to the employee when and where and how the work gets done. And it's that autonomy that really helps people be more productive, more satisfied. And we try to operationalize this in what we call success metrics. That is, when you have this discussion with your boss about what he or she wants you to do, you then try to operationalize it in success metrics saying, at the end of the week or the month or whatever the project is, how are we going to know whether we're successful? So we want people to agree on those success metrics, because if there's an agreement on success metrics, three really good things happen. First is there's a clarification of what we mean by the objectives of the project. If you take a project, say, like improve customer service, people can have very different ideas about what that means. But when you have to take that general idea and make it into success metrics, then the team and the boss get tremendous clarity on what they mean and what they're supposed to be doing. Second of all, when you have success metrics, you can avoid having the boss micromanaging because the boss then has comfort that at the end of the period, there's going to be these success metrics. So we're going to know whether they achieve something. Most bosses are a little uncomfortable with remote work because they're worried about accountability and success metrics provides that accountability. And the third thing is that once you have success metrics, then you have the, uh, the freedom to work when and where and how you want, because as long as you're producing those success metrics, then you're okay. And it's that autonomy, as I've said before, that really produces, that helps people become much more productive and much more satisfied with their job. Okay, cool. Thank you. Well, then sort of zooming out beyond just the world of, of working remotely, you've done uh, lots of work helping folks become more productive or even have extreme levels of productivity. Uh, can you share with us what are some of the, the most useful solutions that folks in your audiences come back again and again and say, wow, this made all the difference? Well, one thing we ask people to do is to be very explicit about setting their priorities and then integrating them into their daily schedules. Now, people say, how do I integrate them into your daily schedule? So we suggest a two-sided schedule. On the left-hand side, you have the typical schedule where people put their meetings, their phone appointments, their other things. But then on the right side, we want them to put, what do they hope to get out of this meeting? What do they hope to get out of this phone call? So people have told me, that this is really useful because it helps them focus on what they really should be getting out of all these appointments. Otherwise, they can go through a whole day and they come home and they say to their spouse or partner, I've worked really hard, but I don't know whether I've accomplished anything. What that really means is they've been passive. They've accepted other people's meetings, other people's emails. They've responded to them 
and they really haven't been pursuing their own priorities. So that's one big thing. A second thing that people like a lot is what we call Ohio, only handle it once. We talk about how you handle messages, and we strongly urge that you filter out a large number of messages and that you skip over a lot of messages by just looking at the subject matter and the uh, person who sent it to you. But then we stress that if there's an important message, one from an important person, like your boss or your spouse or the IRS, we stress that you need to answer it right then and there if you can. And that turns out to be a very important practice because if you don't answer an important email right then and there, you put it in sort of a holding pattern or a holding box. Before you know it, you have over a 100 of those. And then if you go back to find it, it may take you a half an hour or even more to find the, the important message that you've sort of let slip. And worse, you'll forget about the message altogether and you won't answer it. So by using Ohio, only handle it once. That forces you to answer those important messages right then and there. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to dig a little deeper on each of these. So when it comes to that two-sided agenda and you know, what do you hope to gain from this meeting or phone call, could you give us some example articulations of that? Because I imagine it'd be quite possible to have some answers to that question that are a little bit soft or weak and, and not quite as helpful. Like, oh, just kind of see where we're at. <laughs> yeah, touch base. Well, those would be good examples of uh, almost non-goals or non-priorities. So suppose you, you were a member of a team and you're working on a project. And you were a little up in the air as to how much budget you were allowed to spend uh, in the next month on this project. So if you had a meeting with your project leader, you might write down in the two-sided schedule, uh, nail down exactly how much budget we have for the next month. So that would be an example of something where you really were focusing on your priority. Mm-hmm. And what I like about that is when you've determined this is my purpose, this is the goal, you know, nail down the budget. Like if if that was sort of generally floating in your head, like, oh yeah, that's probably one of the things we should talk about. One, you might not get to it. And two, you might not be nearly aggressive enough to get it in terms of like, hey, so what's our budget? Like, oh yeah, well, you know, we'll kind of, you know, figure that out, talking to the finance and accounting guys. And then if you said, well, no, this is the one thing I want for the meeting, you're more likely, I'd imagine, to to ask those follow-ups like, okay, so when will you have that for me? And or, right. well, so I'm about to spend a hundred grand uh, tomorrow. Uh, is that okay? <laughs> and then you've got something, even if it's not the entirety that you were hoping for. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the other uh, beauty of having to put down your priority, what you're trying to accomplish in a meeting is that you might say, well, now that I understand this meeting and what's on the agenda, I shouldn't go there because I don't have any priority to achieve. There's nothing important happening for me. And that leads to a whole discussion about how you might go about treating meetings and dealing with them more productively. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to talk about effective meetings uh, shortly, but before we lose it, you mentioned filtering out messages in email. Is there a piece of software or a tool you use or, or a protocol? H- how do you do that filtering well? 
Well, I use keywords, and unsubscribe is a good example of a keyword. So if there's an unsubscribe in the email, then that goes into my newsletter file because those are almost all newsletters. And another key word is if if there's somebody talking about a political contribution. So that goes into a separate file. And those files tend to be, I tend to empty and not really spend any time with. So you can use it. You can use Google. You can use any of the typical software. But the key is to figure out the right keywords that will really focus uh, the system and will help allocate the emails to the right folders. Oh, yeah. I guess there's like a a split inbox or like an auto labeling or moving thing going on. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Very nice. Okay, cool. Well, so so yeah, let's we talk about priorities. I guess that's that's a big question. So how does one arrive at priorities. And and I guess this is kind of like, what's the meaning of life? But maybe in terms of like a daily, weekly, monthly basis, how do you recommend guiding that, that difficult thinking, decision-making process by which you determine, aha, yes, this is the priority and this is a, not so much a priority? Well, I like to ask people to start by setting out their annual goals and then dividing them into different segments. So You want to talk about your professional goals, those for your own professional development, and those for your team or organization. And you also want to talk about your personal goals, and you want to write them down and deal with them systematically. But then I think those goals set a framework, and you have to bring them back to your week. So what I like to do is to ask people on a Sunday night to sit down or sometime during the weekend and try to think about what are going to be the things that I really want to accomplish this week and to put a list of must-dos together and then have other lower priorities. So that's the sort of methodology that I think you need to use. You got to start with the big picture, but then you got to bring it down to your week and distinguish carefully between the must-dos and the nice-to-dos. And then every night, I want people to sit down and revise that list in light of what they've been able to do, what's come up new, and what they've learned. So they might revise that for the next day. Mm -hmm. Okay, very nice. And how do you recommend when you're communicating no to someone, either for a meeting that you realize you don't need to be there for, or for a request, do you have any favorite ways of, of saying no? Well, I think in terms of meetings, what I like to do is to ask people, what's your agenda for the meeting? Please send me the agenda before I decide whether to go. So some people will never send you an agenda. So that suggests there is an easy way to get out of the meeting because they never sent you the agenda. Then other people would send you an agenda and there would be nothing really on the agenda that was really important for them, for you. So you would say to them, look, uh, I've looked at your agenda and I don't think that these are going to really be critical to my priorities. So uh, let me skip this and I'll uh, be glad to look at the notes for the meeting and see whether there's anything that's come up. The third possible thing is when people send you for a meeting, you could say, I'll be glad to go to this meeting, but in order for me to be effective, I really need to have a list. 
for instance, of contractors, if we're going to discuss contractors, or I really need to see some numbers about this product or the product launch before uh, I go to the meeting. And so that's a way to sort out whether somebody's really going to be serious about the meeting and help you have an effective meeting, or they're just not going to respond to you. And then again, you can sidestep the meeting because they haven't provided what you've told them is really important information. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, Bob, would you use the language, my priorities? I'm imagining a response along the lines of, you know, being a team player is like, well, Bob, this might not be in alignment with your priorities, but really all of us are all together trying to accomplish X, Y, Z. How do you think about that dance and that balance in terms of? Well, that's a fair question. And I think you could say in responses, okay, let's discuss what the team's priorities are and how this meeting is going to further them. And then if I can understand how this meeting really furthers the team's priorities in a way that I can add value, I'll be glad to attend. Mm -hmm. Okay, good deal. And when let's say we, we actually are in the meeting, it is upon us. What are some of your, your top tips on having those meetings being engaging and meaningful? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between whether you're leading the meeting or whether you're just attending the meeting. If you're leading the meeting, it's incumbent upon you to realize that the key to meetings are discussion and debate and not just droning on with lots of PowerPoint. So you need to keep your initial remarks down to, say, 10 minutes and use those 10 minutes to really tee up. These are the issues that we're going to be focused on today, and this is what we hope to accomplish. So that's how you begin the meeting. Second is you ought to really promote discussion and debate by going around and asking people for their opinion. I usually suggest that people start with the more junior members at the table because if the most senior person talks, they might feel a little intimidated and not want to talk or disagree with them. So that's a second thing. A third thing is that you got to have good closure in a meeting and you've got to sort of say, well, this is what we've decided, and here are the next steps. Here are the people who are going to be responsible for the next steps, and here are the time frames. Now, if you're attending a meeting and those things don't happen, you could say, for instance, if somebody starts on 40 PowerPoints and they're just taking up all the time for the meeting, by going through PowerPoints, you might say politely at some point, well, that's great. We've really learned a lot. But, you know, are there some issues that you would really like us to discuss or you have some input in? So that would be a way to sort of stop somebody from going through 40 PowerPoints. Similarly, at the end of the meeting, there are lots of meetings that end inconclusively. So you could say toward the end of the meeting, well, this has been a great meeting. I think we've decided X, Y, Z, but it seems like we still have to resolve ABC. And let's talk about that. Let's focus on that. So that's how you, as a participant in the meeting, can really move it in the right direction. Last thing that's really important about meetings is that they not last too long. There's a lot of evidence that people who go to back-to-back -back video meetings as is true in a lot of people when they were working remotely, they wind up with Zoom fatigue, they wind up not focusing, they become very unproductive. So I'd like to see 
organizations say no video meetings will last more than 45 minutes. So there's at least a 15-minute break in there when people can get away from the screen, maybe have something to eat, go to the men's room or ladies' room if necessary, and really uh, relax a little. Okay. Well, tell me, Bob, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Okay. Well, I want to talk about how people are going back to work in a hybrid environment and what that means and how companies ought to deal with that. Okay. Because that's really what a lot of them are going through now. I think that most people, when our surveyed, say they don't want to go in the future to be all remote and they don't want to be all in person. They want a form of a hybrid. And so most organizations are struggling now with how to design that for a hybrid. And in the book, uh, Remote Incorporated, we suggest a variety of factors that you need to look at. And we have a little acronym called FLOCK, F-L-O-C-S, to sort of summarize those factors. So one, probably the most important, is the function. What's the nature of the work that you're doing? How much of it is collaborative? How much of it involves brainstorming? Those would suggest that you ought to do more uh, in person in the office versus how much of the work involves extended periods of concentration. So that would suggest that you should spend more time at home. A second factor is location. The obvious thing, some companies have most of the people around one metropolitan area. So it's a lot easier for them to come back in person. But more and more companies are scattered throughout the United States. So it doesn't really make sense to come to the office if there's nobody else there. So you might have satellite offices or you might have things where people come in just uh, a few days. A third thing is organizational structure. So some organizations are built more on individual work and others are built more on teams. They're built more on teams that suggest they ought to be in the office. A fourth factor is culture. So a lot of the senior executives I've talked to are very worried that if people don't come back in the office enough, they'll lose their company culture. And I think that's correct. And that's why I think even companies that are spread around the country ought to have several weeks in the year where people come together. And I think it's especially important for onboarding new people because they that's the way that they learn what the culture is. Uh, they can't just read a mission statement. Every company has a nice sounding mission statement, but they really need to figure out what's the actual culture. And a fifth factor is S, scheduling, making sure that the team comes in on the same days. If you have a team, you want them to come in all on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You don't want some people coming in on different days. So the other question that people ask me a lot in terms of designing a hybrid is, should the individual's wishes be paramount or should the organization's issues be paramount? And my answer is straightforward. The team is the critical variable. So if you look through these five factors, you might come up with a very different answer for each of the teams. So we should try to recognize individual wants as much as we can, but ultimately the team needs should predominate. All right. Thank you. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of the favorite quotes that I have is, let's make a new mistake 
And uh, by that, I mean, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to, in good faith, to have something go wrong. But the key is, when that happens, to set things up so that they don't happen again, to take preventative action. So that's what I say, let's make a new mistake, meaning let's not make the same mistake over and over again. All right. And how about a favorite book? Well, one of my favorite books is by an economist named Amartya Sen, who wrote about famines in uh, the third world. And what he showed was that a lot of uh, famines didn't come about because there wasn't enough food. They came about because of the political, social structure, which didn't allow for the best distribution. So I found it really revealing that these terrible famines, many of them could have been avoided if they had better political and social economic structure. It wasn't just a question of not having enough food. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Well, one of the things that I do is I take a nap every day. Oh, me too. I take a short nap, a power nap. And so I'm really believe in those power naps. So sometime in the afternoon when my body temperature goes down and uh, I take a nap and I find that just by, I carry a blindfold when I travel. So I just put my feet up, put my blindfold on. And before I know it, I take a 20 or 25 minute nap and it re-energizes me for the rest of the day. So I'm a strong believer in naps. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? There are two websites. One is uh, bobposen.com. That has all my uh, articles and books. Uh, And then we have uh, a new website for the remote book, which is remoteincorporatedbook.com. R-E-M-O-T-E-I-N-C-B-O-O-K.com. So that's another place that they can do that. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I think the real challenge for people is to stay focused on what's most important to them. And I think a lot of people haven't really sorted that out. They haven't really figured out what are the biggest priorities that they have? What are the highest priorities that they have? And then second of all, uh, to stay focused during the day and during the week on those top priorities. A lot of people engage in various types of uh, behaviors that, say, procrastination is a good example where they avoid what the, is really important to them, and so they don't get it accomplished. And I'd say more generally, people need to think carefully before they start to do things and spend the time up front in really thinking through why they're doing it and what they're doing it. For instance, I teach a course at MIT on personal productivity, and we give people a reading diagnostic test, and there's a huge difference. Some people read this article in three or four minutes. Other people take 14 or 15 minutes, and it turns out the difference is the people who do read faster and effectively have thought clearly about what they're trying to get out of this reading, and then they read for that. They don't try to read every word. What they're trying to do is read for their purpose, whatever their purpose is. And similarly, I'm a speed writer. I was asked from time to time to write an article for the Harvard Business Review, 
And when I wrote an article and submitted it, the editor-in-chief said to me, you're the only person we have who hands in his or her articles on time and within the word limit. And it seems like, like you have two jobs. You're working in the investment industry and you're teaching a full load. So we'd like to know what your secret sauce is. The key is to use outlines so that you can think clearly. What's the logic of your argument? A lot of people try to write without outlines, but it's a big mistake because writing is two different processes, thinking and then translating. And an outline is the way in which you think through the logic of your argument. And once you get that down, then you can translate a lot better. Well, that is cool. And, and well, now I'm curious if if you're a huge advocate for outlining and you are best in class at uh, delivering the goods in terms of on time and within the word limit and, and being a, a hit, any extra detail you'd like to share associated with how you think about an outline really well? Well, if we want to think about writing in an outline, the first thing you got to do is let yourself put down on a piece of paper all the ideas that you have for the article or the memo, whatever you're going to read, and let yourself just put them all down. A lot of people get stuck because they're not willing to put those articles, those ideas down. They're, they get uh, some sort of block. So if you just put them down and you're not worried about any particular order, that helps. The second thing you do is you group the ideas into the natural groupings. And so that helps you in the third thing, which is you order them logically. You take the groups and put them in a logical order. And then the fourth thing is you always want to write for good readers. So you want to start with an introduction that tells the reader why you're going to be interested in reading this and then gives the reader what I call a roadmap. It says what the structure of the article or the memo is going to be. And then you want to write a good conclusion. So that's the key to writing outlines is start with just lots of ideas, group them, number two, put them in a logical order, three, and then four, put them in a format that's good for good readers. And when you do an outline, kind of what kind of depth are you are you shooting for in, in terms of is it simply, hey, I've got five top level things and then like three sort of second level things under each of them? Or, or how do you know when you're like, Yep, this outline is sufficient. Well, it depends on what you're writing. If you're writing two or three page memo, which is what most people write in business, then usually if you can just have five points, that will be enough to guide you through. If you're writing a more academic piece, then you might have to have uh, the same five points, but lots of subheads so that you'll know how to develop it. But I actually try to write most art of outlines on one page uh, because you want the line of argument to be really clear. And so you want to have it in a very succinct form on one page. So that's sort of the way I'd strongly urge that people do it. All right. Well, Bob, this has been a treat. Thank you. And, and I wish you all the best in your extreme productivity and your remote adventures. It's great meeting you, Pete. I really loved Bob's perspective on setting up that two-sided schedule. It 
kind of feels like, oh yes, of course, it should have always been done that way. Why haven't I been doing that? Because what's so powerful is it, it could be very easy to sort of fall into the passenger seat. Like, okay, I got this meeting. I got this meeting. I got this meeting. Okay, that's the day. But then taking that extra time to think through, and what am I hoping to achieve from that? Oh, wait, maybe nothing. Oh, wait, maybe I don't need to be there. Boom. Insights, time liberated, as well as what do I really got to focus on? What I got to double down on and make sure really happens here. Love it. Good stuff from Bob. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP682. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.